When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Picture a world so small you can't see it. It's not imaginary, but it's so tiny even microscopes can't detect it. This is the space between the particles that make up all of our existence. It can help us understand our reality. It will improve our technology. It may even help save our planet. It could also hold the key to finally defeating Thanos. You are entering the Quantum Realm. This week, we're going to explore the world of quantum physics. Don't run away just yet. It may seem scary, but together, we'll learn the basics and hear about one of the most interesting applications, computing. And in our SAS class, we're going to learn how quantum thinking can improve the development of sustainable energy. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and today we're going subatomic. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Let's face it, science can be complicated. That's why this show exists. But science also helps us to understand the universe around us. And when you really think about it, quantum physics is trying to answer a very important question. What is reality? At its core, quantum physics is the theoretical and now practical base for explaining the nature and behavior of matter and energy at the atomic and subatomic levels. It's a mouthful, I know. But it's needed. You don't believe me? Just think of the two scientific legends who opened the door to this field of study. Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein. Bohr discovered the atom and was considered a hero in the world of chemistry and physics. Einstein is, well, Einstein. Who doesn't know that E equals mc squared? What you might not know is that when it came to quantum mechanics, they weren't in agreement. They feuded like Iron Man and Captain America. It was what you might call a physics civil war. And as to the subject of this debate, no, it wasn't about how to beat Thanos. It was about the building blocks of the universe. Bohr insisted that what we deem as real is merely just our interpretation of an uncertain universe. We can never really know the true state of any given part of it. As for Einstein, he needed to have certainty. As he put it, God does not play dice with the universe. These two went back and forth using thought experiments in the hope of proving their points mathematically. The momentum shifted between the two as time went on, but in the end, neither could be proven right. Reality, it seems, is still up for debate. But these exercises in mental acrobats were not in vain 
as these two sparked an entire field of research that has opened up numerous avenues, not just for work in the lab, but also activities in our daily lives. One of the major hubs for this work happens to be the University of Waterloo, where we find our first guest. Her name is Tracy Forrest, and she is the Program Director of Transformative Quantum Technologies. She is overseeing what may be the dawn of a new era in which quantum physics plays a larger role in our daily lives. What makes quantum physics so different or maybe just intimidating from other types of science, including maybe other types of physics? Well, in quantum speak, we call what you refer to as other types of physics as classical physics, and this includes Newton's and Maxwell's laws. And the job of classical mechanics is to predict the future, and these classical laws don't apply in the quantum regime. So in quantum systems, we, we say that they're inherently, it's true, they're inherently probabilistic at the atomic scale. So when you speak of a quantum system, you talk about what you may learn about the system. Quantum properties enable processes that are not possible in the classical world. So through quantum, we can learn in one measurement, which would take many measurements classically. Today, it is very easy for us to go into a lab like we have at Waterloo and show a variety of quantum effects. And um, one can start to develop an intuition for quantum and, and also understand its promise. A lot of people think that quantum physics is for the future. I believe it's already being used in some devices that we have right now. Do you have a few examples of that? Certainly, Jason. In fact, there are many examples, but I can just highlight a few. There's quantum interferometry to image nanoscale security features, for example, on a $20 bill. A quantum also underpins uh, magnetic resonance imaging, so MRI. The, the phenomenon of a magnetic resonance is rooted in the existence of spin angular momentum of a quantum system and its specific orientation with respect to an applied magnetic field. So MRI can only be understood by quantum mechanics. GPS is also a technology that uses quantum effects. So every time you need to navigate from point A to point B, your GPS guide performs a little calculation that depends on the precision of atomic clocks. And an atomic clock is an extremely accurate type of clock, which is regulated by the vibrations of an atomic or molecular system, such as cesium. Each GPS satellite contains multiple atomic clocks that contribute very precise time to the GPS signals. The GPS receivers decode these signals and effectively synchronize each receiver to the atomic clocks. Also, since we know that particles can, also, can only assume certain energies, we can use these energy levels to help us understand the atomic structure and to create new uh, technological devices. You know, we see this quanti quantization of energies in our daily lives. Um, an example would be the color of gems. Rubies are red because they contain a few atoms of chromium and whose energy levels are separated in such a way that we see the rubies emit a red light. And so thanks, thanks to the pioneering work of physicists who have manipulated these energy levels, we now have lasers and LEDs. And, uh, you know, we see virtuous cycle really unfold as, as we see major advances in materials that lead to new devices. We, we really see uh, the, the field accelerating in terms of development. And there are many, many, many more examples that I could point to, right, uh, in cancer research and oil exploration and even, um, you know, testing that the fat droplets in chocolate are the right size for a smooth feel. And, you know, and, and also another food example is test that 
channels and cheese are the proper size and connectivity. So the applications of quantum technology need not be high tech. And tell me, should I buy a quantum dot television? Because <laughs> it has the word quantum in it. You know, that is a fantastic example of where we see commercialization of quantum um, you know, widespread. So that, that's a fantastic example. There is a select group of people who truly love quantum and studying it. And I'm not talking about the guys from the Big Bang Theory. What is it that makes it such a draw to people like yourself and so many others? There's a few things here. One is that with quantum, you're enabling processes that can't happen in the classical world. Quantum changes the rules. You know, what you might not be able to do in, in our classical world, you might be able to do in a quantum world. And, and to me, I find this fascinating. And aside from the joy of learning something new about how nature works, I think people, including myself, want to gain an appreciation of what quantum might enable and how it might touch their lives. We can point to some potential first opportunities. And, and typically, these are found where we see the benefit of, you know, the underlying quantum effect leading to a large efficiency gain. An example of this would be superconducting cables for power transmission. Superconducting cables would mean lossless transmission and distribution, which means we can increase our, our power by over 11%. And we can also improve efficiency of solar cells, so we can increase the conversion efficiency from, from let's say, 18% to 40%. And quantum will, will also find use where efficiency increases critically needed. And an example of this is in... Uh, the, and uh, spintronics for non-volatile memory, and also an improved classical e electronics. So here the theoretical gain is, is a factor of 600. Um, so this translates into an increase in speed or, or battery lifetime. Really, there are opportunities in nearly any field, and we see an immense opportunity for, for industry, for competitive advantage across you know, a range of different sectors. I certainly hope that more people will want to study quantum. Um, and, and I think it might also be worth mentioning that recent reports, such as the one we saw, um, I think it was last fall in New York Times, suggested that the, you know, the next tech, tech talent shortage will be in uh, quantum computing. This is a, an important field and one that, uh, you know, we would love to see more people entering. So if anyone wants to learn more about the real quantum realm, as opposed to the one in the Avengers movie, where can they go? So I liked how you asked this question. You prefaced it with real. And there's a, a lot of misinformation and hype in this field. So it's great that you host these types of podcasts and to, to help demystify important fields such as quantum and present an honest view. Here at, at the University of Waterloo, the Institute for Quantum Computing offers outreach programs. These outreach programs are tailored to different audiences. So there's some for teachers, there's some for undergraduates, there's some for postdocs, and there's a, also a summer school for grad students and postdocs in quantum key distribution. Also, the Institute for Quantum Computing developed a quantum exhibit. Um, maybe some of your listeners may have seen that. It was touring across Canada as part of the Canada 150 celebrations and also across Europe. So certainly you can check out the, their website, iqc.ca, to connect to, to some of those programs. And for industry, we're just in the final stages of completing our Quantum Exploration Center. And uh, here we will be hosting industry workshops. So if there's industry listeners in uh, your audience, they, they may connect uh, through the TQT, the Transformative Quantum Technology website, to, to set up a meeting or attend a workshop. And they can even become an affiliate member of, of our program. And, of course, if you, if 
your industry and you're listening to this podcast, we want you to remember us when, you know, there's something that you can't do in the classical world. When classical theory says something is impossible, you, we want you to think of us and perhaps it's possible in the quantum world. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. During the Bohr-Einstein debates, an interesting theory arose. Imagine a box in the quantum realm. That box contains balls. If two balls acted in a similar manner, you could allow one to escape and track it by looking at the box and the other balls that stayed. This is called entanglement, although Einstein had a cooler name to describe it, spooky action at a distance. Imagine a tuning fork. When you hit it, there's a vibration and a hum. If you bring that fork closer to a second tuning fork or a piano string of the same pitch, it will also vibrate even after you take away that original fork. Admittedly, this is a very simplified example. Quantum entanglement is a complicated beast when you get into the physics. However, you may not need to understand it to use it. That's because there are currently researchers working on being able to use entanglement to improve security. It would be like a CAPTCHA, except instead of clicking on photographs, you would be sending quantum energies. It's known as quantum cryptography and is not only being developed, but it's already in tests in laboratories right now. Of course, in order to have quantum codes, you're going to need a quantum computer. And my next guest is working to develop them. His name is Alexandre Blay, and he is the scientific director for the Institut Quantique at the University of Sherbrooke. What is quantum computing at its most basic level? Quantum computing is a completely new way to do computations. So in your regular computer, if you want to, I don't know, play some game or, or uh, uh, try some, some new strategy in a game, well, what you'll do is you'll try one strategy and then another strategy until you find a winning strategy. In a quantum computer, you could try all of these strategies at the same time in what we call different superpositions, quantum superpositions of the d different strategies, and thereby hopefully finding the winning strategy faster. So quantum computing is a way to do multiple things at once, if you want, using the power of quantum mechanics. We hear about bits and bytes in computers, but in quantum computing, there's something called a qubit, I think I'm pronouncing it right? What exactly is that? That's correct. So the qubit is the most basic element of, of information in a quantum computer. So in, in your regular computer, everything is based on zeros and ones, bits. So whenever you send uh, a Wi-Fi signal or, or, or process information on your computer, whatever you're doing, everything is represented as zeros and ones. And the same is true in a quantum computer. With a big, big difference is that while... In a classical computer, a bit can be zero or one. In a quantum computer, it can be simultaneously zero and one. So you can have these quantum superpositions. And that's why a quantum computer can do 
multiple things at once because it will just prepare all of its bits, of a, sorry, its qubits, its quantum bits in a simple position. And what we've been able to achieve now in the laboratory over the last, well, 20 years is circuits that behave exactly in this way. They have very specific energies and nothing else in between. And this is where we encode, encode the zeros and the ones. So one energy will be, will be zero and another energy will be one. And because this is a quantum circuit now, you can have a superposition of these two energies at once, zero and ones. How then could the research that's going into quantum computing essentially make the uncertain certain so that we do have these zero and one states? We always hear about this uncertainty principle, and, and that has to hit uh, us back somewhere in quantum computing. But there's two aspects uh, to the answer on this. The first is that Uncertainty, or if you want randomness, is in fact a good thing for computing. There are, in fact, multiple methods to compute in regular computers, in, in what I'll call classical computers, today's computers. We use randomness uh, in different ways as a resource, in fact. Uh, and if you want, I can give you a, a quick example. For example, you, you could drop me off somewhere in the Rockies, in the Canadian Rockies, and ask me, find the point of lowest altitude. So then what I could do is I could walk, for example, or find the lowest altitude in a 100 kilometer square region. So I could walk through all of that 100 kilometer trying to figure out which is the lowest point. Another approach is that I could decide, well, let's go down that hill. It's, that's probably a good place to start. I'll go down the hill, walk down the hill, and then eventually I'll end up in some valley. But I might have missed the lowest point, right? I'm just in some shallow valley. Mm -hmm. So what I'll do, I'll have to do is to take a random decision, say, ah, let's look over that mountain. Let's, let's walk over that mountain. Maybe there's an even shallower valley. And by once in a while taking these random guesses, in fact, I have a larger probability of finding the minimum point than by... Well, at least, or a larger probability of finding this, this more rapidly than searching systematically through everything. And so randomness, in fact, was something powerful, is something powerful. We hear about how light can be used to transmit binary information, fiber optics and such. It seems there may be another option based on your research for quantum information transfer, and that's microwaves. Explain how these waves work to transmit information because most people normally associate them with heating food. Correct. So it's quite surprising, in fact, to, or it was initially surprising to many researchers that we could think about microwaves in, a, in terms of quantum mechanics. These circuits, the, the frequencies at, at which they will react and interact are in fact microwave frequencies. These are the natural frequencies for, for these superconducting quantum circuits. Uh, it was initially a bit surprising to see that uh, microwaves could be used uh, at the quantum level. They will easily accept and emit microwave uh, photons, uh, grains of, uh, of light, but now light at microwave frequencies rather than at optical frequency. We're going to hear about the quantum realm quite a bit in the next week or so. When do you think we're going to be seeing computers that are actually based on quantum mechanics in the future? Predicting a future is always uh, difficult. If you look at uh, predictions that were made in the 40s or the 50s about the future of computers, you would have seen, for example, in popular mechanics, there's uh, one famous quote which says that uh, pop uh, computers in the future would weight only uh, a few tons, right? And we have uh, only a few thousand vacu of vacuum tubes. 
of course, these predictions completely missed the fact that the transistor uh, was created uh, uh, and completely changed uh, computing as we know it. So in the same way, it's difficult to exactly put a date on when we will have the quantum computer. What I can say, however, is that research in quantum computing is accelerating. It's going much, much faster now, and we are seeing results now that, have, that I really would not have foreseen only a few years ago. And that's really encouraging. And that progress is not happening only in one laboratory, but is happening in several laboratories worldwide. But I imagine in 10 years, the prototypes that we are, that we currently have, will probably be able to do something at least which is uh, interesting from the point of view of, of computing. I don't think that in 10 years we'll have what we can call a true quantum computer that can solve arbitrary problems. But at least within 10 years we should have something, well, pretty useful. It's SAS class time, and today we're going to explore how the quantum realm may be able to improve our daily lives and our planet. Our guest teacher is Dr. Pavle Radovanovic, a chemistry professor at the University of Waterloo. He is finding ways quantum physics can help to address many of the issues we face today using the quantum power of light and the amazing properties of nanocrystals. Well, nanocrystals are basically the same as any other type of, of crystals of a, of a given material, but they're just much, much smaller and uh, therefore invisible to, uh, to human eye. So, for example, as the word says, nanometer is, is uh, one billionth of a meter, and that would be essentially 10 to, to 100 times smaller than the width of, uh, of human hair, just so that people get some, some real-world comparison. Uh, there is no reason one would make uh, any type of, of nanocrystal so small. For example, these Swarovski nanocrystals are made to be you know, visually appealing, and so there's no need why one would make them particularly uh, small. But for many other materials, some of the properties are, are very much sensitive to size. For example, uh, uh, electronic properties, reactivity, catalytic properties, essentially properties that could be that could be technologically relevant. And so, for those types of materials, it very much makes sense to make them in a, in a nanometer regime to make them so small to exhibit those properties and use them for technologically relevant applications. Are nanocrystals capable of producing light, and is there any use for that other than to you know show off some bling? Yes, indeed, that is one of the the most uh, important application of, of these materials. Uh, many of these uh, uh, nanocrystals that are made of semiconductors can emit light, and they can emit light at different energy than their bulk counterparts. So, for example, if we change the size of these nanocrystals, we can tune the light from blue to, to green to red and essentially cover the entire visible spectrum. That's just one of the examples of the, of the size-dependent properties. These properties like a melting temperature activity are also size sensitive. So, for example, going back to that uh, question of lighting, this is exactly the basis for application of these materials, for example, in displays or for general lighting applications, uh, LEDs, for example, which are now uh, a fairly common uh, source of, of lighting in our everyday lives. What about using light to make energy? And we hear about this with solar cells. 
But can we use nanocrystals to be able to achieve this goal? Yes, that is, uh, that is the, the other uh, uh, aspect of the process that I just described in terms of emitting light. Uh, the nanocrystals can also absorb light. And so once they absorb light, they can generate the electrons or, or, or current that can actually be used as electricity. So the, 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 idea, the entire idea of uh, photovoltaics or solar cells is, the, is that the sunlight is transformed into electricity or generally another form of energy. And so plants have been doing that for millions, if not billions of years uh, through the process known as photosynthesis. They would absorb the light and then uh, channel these uh, uh, currents into certain centers in the plants that would produce uh, uh, chemically relevant compounds and, and chemically store essentially that energy. So nanocrystals do that in, uh, in an analogous way, but instead they uh, produce uh, currents that then actually can be used to, to operate, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, electronics or, or in our, you know, everyday lives. And so uh, uh, one of the, the, the most appealing uh, ideas of using nanocrystals is exactly for that photovoltaics, because now we can, we can optimize their efficiency we can optimize a part of the solar spectrum uh, in which they absorb uh, to uh, produce that electricity. And so that uh, allows us to, to manipulate essentially how we transform sunlight into energy and do so in a very energy efficient way. How sustainable will this be? Yeah, that, that is a fantastic question and a, and a very important one. Uh, sustainability is really a very multifaceted problem involving energy, natural source resources, environment, uh, uh, you know, and, and all of that, all of those aspects have to play together. So, for example, there are nanocrystals that are very energy efficient, but they're not sufficiently robust. They're not su sufficiently stable in the long term. Or there are other ones that may be stable and even efficient, but they're very expensive and made up of, of uh, uh, rare metals uh, or expensive materials. So th that's essentially uh, the, the reason why this task of using not only nanocrystals, but, but generally achieving overall sustainability is so, so daunting. It's such a difficult task. But, you know, there are some, some fantastic improvements uh, uh, in recent years that, that uh, you know, allowed uh, a, an increase in the efficiency using these nanocrystals, I mean, efficiency of, of converting solar energy to electricity in a very efficient way while uh, using materials that are uh, earth abundant and improving that stability to the point that they become commercially viable. And so I do see a real hope in this. Uh, not to end up on a, on a pessimistic note, yes, it's a difficult problem, but I do see a real hope in eventually uh, using these nanocrystals as a part of the solution. It's probably no, not going to be the only solution. It's not going to be the only way in which can, uh, approach, we can approach sustainability, but it can certainly be an important component in that mix of, of uh, different uh, renewable energies and, and different technologies that are sustainable. And I 
think that uh, research can certainly provide uh, a path towards towards using these nanocrystals in you know uh, hopefully a uh, near future uh, in the in the real world applications and allow us to to reach that goal of, of overall sustainability. Do you then see a time when nanocrystals and maybe just quantum physics in general will be able to improve energy sustainability such that we may not ever have to worry about fossil fuels again? Yes, that would be that would be fantastic. That would be fantastic. Uh, you know, all, in all honesty, we are not there yet. But but the fact that these nanocrystals can actually exhibit a quantum phenomena that are uh, useful uh, in uh, in improving the the efficiency and therefore making uh, us more sustainable is certainly a very important one. As is the ability to use these nanocrystals to, for example, tune the, the absorption of light, the efficiency of electricity generation. So I think that they could really one day uh, lead us to the, to the point of, uh, of a carbon-free society. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has made you realize that big things really can come from very, very small particles. For CuriousCast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support has been overwhelming. We want to show our gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show. Send me a tweet at jtetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Super Awesome Science Show.